Hello, folks, and welcome to The Unconventional Path, Entrepreneurship and Innovation Stories and Ideas. I'm Balin Usitz. And I'm Mike Wasserman. Mike, today we're excited to be joined by Anthony Minasali. Anthony is a pioneer of internet-based communications, having started three companies in the internet space, making him a serial entrepreneur. He is currently the CEO and co-founder of SignalWire, and SignalWire is a three-year-old company that provides internet-based communications, including both voice and video, to companies. Sounds interesting, Palo. It's nice to have a example of tech, and uh, and this is going to be a really uh, a, a technical entrepreneur. Somebody who's an engineer and a an entrepreneur. Now you fit that bill, but I don't know too many of these types of of entrepreneurs that really can thrive over the long term and and really be the technical driver of a company and also take on a managerial role. So what do you think? Let's jump right into the interview. Yeah, I think that's a good idea, Mike. It was an interesting conversation with Anthony. All right. Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Unconventional Path Podcast. I'm Bala Musitz. Today, I'm here with Anthony Minasali. He is the CEO of SignalWire, and he co-founded the company with Sean Henney. Welcome to the show, Anthony. Thanks. Glad to be here. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about SignalWire and what it does. Sure. Um, so one of the simplest ways to describe SignalWire is uh, remote managed telecom infrastructure. So that's a uh, made programmable. So that's a mouthful. But um, basically, uh, over the years, telecom has evolved from uh, wires and um, complicated equipment um, to a point where it could be made into software. Um, and around the time when, when we started working on that, um, we, we strive to convert as much of it as software as possible so that we can run people's telecom um, for them on the internet, um, making the telecom kind of transverse the internet and be accessible for the internet for developers and end users alike. So basically making the backend tools to make uh, remote communications products. Okay. So is this what some people might call voice over IP? Yes, that's one of the the early protocols um, names. Voice over IP is just kind of, it, it's evolved into real-time communication now. That's the new fancy name for it because they wanted to make it cover video also. But when, voice over IP was the original uh, concept, which I still call it even on video because, um, you know, you start calling it VoIP after a thousand times. So yeah. you can say less words. But um, we've been working on this stuff for like 20 years now. Um, in the early days, you used to use it just for audio. Um, but it got more and more interesting for video in, say, like the last eight years. So it's the, essentially the concept of moving data over the Internet uh, in place of like analog wires or any other concepts. Right, right. Or over the air. Yep. Yeah. Okay, great. So it's another alternative for sort of distributing that type of data and information around the world. Yes. Yeah. So how long has SignalWire been around? Um, we just uh, hit our third year. Okay. Uh, we founded in, uh, say, like the, the start of 2018. Okay. So three years, pretty much. And and uh, how'd you guys get your start? Is it venture-backed, uh, privately funded? Yeah, a little of everything, right? So um, spent a long time. Our, our roots come from open source. So we started an open source project, and it ran for about 12 or 13 years. Um, and that generated some revenue that we could use for bootstrapping. 
Um, and then we, from there, did an angel round with some popular um, investors. Um, the founder of Zoom, the founder of Barracuda Networks, the founder of AngelFire, a bunch of other you know friends of mine, CEOs I worked for in the past. Um, and then I uh, got a Series A from uh, Storm Ventures in uh, in the in the Valley. So oh, great, a little of everything so far. We're actually about to raise our Series B as well. Oh, okay. And and what size Series B are you hoping for? Um, we're expecting it to be like a twenty million. Oh, great! On, uh, yeah, that's a yeah. that's a good size Series B. Yeah. Yeah, and and where are you guys geographically located? So that's an interesting fact about us is we're geographically located. I like to say on the internet as a joke um, because everyone is somewhere different. Um, because we're remote communications, we eat our own dog food, and it's something we strive for not because we were made to by the current conditions we founded the company under this principle so we have people in like 15 different states in the u.s and about just as many countries so we have people all over the world um, basically everyone calls in remote um, using our own technology we're able to build essentially a remote office tool that allows our entire company to function completely um, through short um non-invite generated meaning so like we have this concept of a virtual office where you can see each other doing work and you can just pop in and talk to them so unlike oh, wow. like a zoom kind of thing or teams where you schedule stuff um you can still schedule calls sometimes when you want to but there's a lot of impromptu short discussions that that happen um it, there's a few of things that we really wanted to solve and that was one of them um you know, focusing on how to leverage technology and innovation forward on that kind of thing. Yeah. That sounds like a really innovative uh, uh, tool or application. So is that exclusive to SignalWire? Well, we made it as a product. So um, the, the two key things we wanted to solve was um, not making every meeting scheduled, right? Because you don't want your tired calendar to be filled with blocks of calls. You have to keep jumping around. And one of the things we did was make the the remote employees that can sign in it binds with your Google or Azure or whatever you use as your corporate database. And you can grant people access into the system. And then when you're logged in, you can, you have privileges of which other rooms you can see, just like a real office. So you can go show up and go, Oh, look, there's five meetings going on. If you're, uh, have a executive role like me, I can watch the entire company running. Um, uh, if you're a salesperson, you can see your team running. If you like, whatever you happen to be, if you're, um, on a team with someone else you can tell if they're busy or not um lots of visual cues um so you go in and out of the rooms and that was one of the big problems we wanted to solve and then the other one was uh latency so we wanted to make sure latency was low enough that you wouldn't get the zoom fatigue caused by like waiting for people to hear you like you can tell that they're delayed right. and like you talk over each other in both directions and a bunch of stuff like that so that was the other problem we put a lot of effort into but we, we made it for ourselves originally but because of the pandemic, we accelerated making a product out of it using our own. We make video APIs so that you can make any kind of video product you want. And then we made ourselves a, a remote office tool. And then it turns out that people actually are interested in uh, using that product. So it, it powers live events and powers remote office. It's very similar paradigms, just slightly different use cases. Wow, that sounds really interesting. So just out of curiosity, you said you were involved in an open source uh, project for a number of years. Yeah. What, which one was that? It's called pre-switch. Okay. And what did and that do? Yeah. So I started that project in 2005 because 
I was trying to build something interesting back then. Uh, it's something you can find every day now, but at the time I was trying to build a call center that let me get on the, have my agents talk on the phone and then they would look at a web page and see who they're on the phone with and have the phone system actually be in the internet so that when the calls came in, you could route them and stuff in, in the, you know, do like your whole agent thing online. So it's like a call center, like five nines or something like that. Um, so when I wanted to do that, there was no software that solved it. So similar to how say like Apache or Nginx um, provides a web server or um, MySQL or Postgres provides a database in open source. So we made FreeSwitch, which is a telecom stack in, in open source. So I built that uh, to solve one of my own problems, but it got to be the solution is bigger than the problem and ended up having massive enterprises adopt the software and use it, including actual five nines now. So I did solve my problem, but four or five nines because I got moved you know, into a bigger, a more important mission, which is to convert all telecom to software. But in the, in the meantime, like companies like five nines and Dialpad and a whole bunch of other ones in the Valley were able to you know, take the software and uh, use it. One of our main premises is that you no longer have to raise uh, 30 to $50 million or be a corporate entity that makes a billion dollars a year in order to, to make uh, infrastructure that involves voice. So like those guys um, paved the way by using kind of our early open source stuff. And now with SignalWire, we'll make it so everybody is uh, able to share and being able to just own their own little slice of the telecom network on their own uh, addressing. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That sounds really interesting. So what was sort of the, uh, since you're one of the founders, co-founders of SignalWire, what was sort of the aha moment that said, okay, we're going to start this business? It was a lot of things. Um, Let's say I already wanted to start the business, maybe even five years ago, but I was waiting for the stars to align. To me, those stars involved the internet speeds um, getting adequate, a, a, pure, a, a clear sign that something like 5G was imminent, um, because one of the main ingredients in the uh, our success is the internet working right. So the internet started to really get pretty decent in the last 10 years. Uh, like if you look at... Um, the, the average internet speeds between say like 2010 and now, um, the time it took to get between the 2010 and 2017, um, it's already gotten that much bigger from 17 to 20 and then 20 to 22 is gonna be that much again. So the, the order of magnitude scale of the internet speeds has gone up to the point that uh, any device that has can get on the internet will have ample amounts of internet where you could do like amazingly high quality video and voice. And, um, today in a good day, like if you're in a metropolitan area and you're on LTE signal, you probably have more than enough to do like a voice call through your internet, but then there's like dead zones and stuff. Um, so the 5g opens a little wait and see. So I really cared about the, the mobile device being internet accessible. Um, but at the same time, um, stationary things like, uh, internet services that other people build are already kind of put somewhere where the internet's pretty decent. So we got a head start with some of that stuff. But, so I'm predicting down the line, um, as we go even further, that the end users of our customers will have a lot of internet, which will enable devices yeah. to use, uh, you know, internet first, rather than trying to find a phone line or a mobile connection. Yeah. So that was one of the big ones. Yeah, sure. So uh, who's a typical customer of SignalWire? So we're very... Um, 
versatile when it comes to that. Um, a typical customer, the easy answer would be um, developers. Um, developers have always kind of been in our DNA, so we're very good at uh, making interfaces to let programmers make stuff. It's almost like if you think of programmers like artists, like we make paint and, and canvases and, and all the tools they need to be able to make their art. Um, that's a, a large portion of it. Um, it also tends to be, um, you know, depending on how you look at it, developers are the ones that get to use our interfaces the most, but sometimes the customer is a larger company who's trying to achieve something through the internet. They want to have like a large scale conferencing system, or they want to have lots of phone calls going really fast, uh, getting routed, depending on what's happening, like uh, pushing traffic to different call centers, um, getting clients on the phone. So sales enablement. Um, so it's like, uh, in the buzzword land of digital transformation, as you like to say, which is a fancy way of saying use the internet for stuff. Um, companies that are all in on that kind of mentality tend to want to put everything they do in the internet. So like, you know, they go get the email and like no one makes an email server anymore. Payment gateway, no one makes their own payment gateway anymore. Um, telecom, they still have to go get telecom for somewhere and it's, it's cumbersome. So now, what Gmail does for email, we do for telecom, people that want to do that kind of thing. So that fits a really broad audience of customer. But uh, it, it, there's always a developer in there somewhere. So even if our customer is the CIO of a large corporation who's trying to build a new product, um, it's probably the developer that we talk to the most. Yes, yes. Uh, so what is a typical price tag for one of these systems? Let's say I'm a, a, a company with uh, you know a dozen locations around the country, I have a, several hundred employees, and I'd, and I'd like to sign up for this capability. What what would that sort of price tag run me? Well, if you're trying to build something at a low level, let's say you want to put our API inside of your own application and use it, um, it's billed by the minute. So while you're on, while the call's going, it's, it's a fraction. It's, it's less than one penny per minute for each different person that's in the room at the time. And then you get billed kind of like a taxi cab you know, mm -hmm. metered for how long the call lasts and what quality you're at and a bunch of things like that. If you're just making normal phone calls, there's another price. A lot of our prices are microtransactions. Um, you know, that's like where the world's gotten with communications these days. Um, when you want to use um, some of our high-level products, like our remote office tools, um, those are based on user price, so per head. Um, and right now we're starting at I think it's somewhere in the neighborhood of like $20 a person a month. Uh, don't quote me exactly on that, yep. but it's something like that. We have like a minimum of 10. Um, it'll, the further we get with our roadmap, it will basically be similar to if you've ever used like uh, GitHub or Gmail or one of those where you can buy more users, you just pay per head. Yep. If you get to the enterprise level and you have 100,000 customers or users in your system, then we negotiate down to enterprise pricing. So right, right. Very typical. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you talking that through reminds me of uh, earlier in, in my life, I, I worked for IBM and I worked in the research division and this was would be uh, in the early 80s. And I remember uh, we put in a video conferencing system between Yorktown Heights, which is in New York State, and Almaden, California, which is where we had another research building out there. And we spent millions of dollars on a dedicated T1 line <laughs> between Yorktown Heights, New York, and Almaden, and it didn't work very well. Uh, a lot of latency, and it, and it really was, uh, it was interesting to do, but it really wasn't a very, I would not call it a success. 
And it's remarkable how, how far that technology has come. I mean, now you're talking about, you know, a few cents uh, uh, for per minute where we were paying uh, lots and lots of dollars uh, per, per minute of video conferencing as well as yeah, all the equipment. Yeah. That's a challenge too. Getting video over T1 line isn't easy. Um, today, like in an average call, I think like, you know, this is an audio thing, but we're on video for the sake of recording it. And I yes. can see that I'm sending about a, an entire T1 line worth of traffic to you right now just to have this call. So imagine trying to jam back in those days, like right. a, a decent video signal into there. Like you'd have to compress it and basically a little postage stamp size video. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, we've come a long way, haven't we? So do, do you have a, an entrepreneurial background? Have, have you done startups in the past? Are you an entrepreneur or uh, tell, tell me a little bit about your background? You could classify me as an entrepreneur, but I didn't, uh, not the, maybe the type that just goes around doing startups. My background is always in engineering. So I'm a technical founder. Um, we're a rare breed because most of the time um, we get sent in the back to the engine room <laughs> to work on the, the, the machinery. But um, in this case, like I've been working for 15 years on my software um, and I've contributed a ton of time to it. Um, I've, the only other company I've had before SignalWire was a consulting company where I would do professional services around our open source project. Um, that did pretty well. It's just not a scalable thing because you have to clone yourself basically and train a bunch of highly skilled engineers. And you, when you start having millions of users, like our project does, um, the ones that want help, it's hard to decide like who you're going to help and how you're going to have enough people help them all. Everybody's doing something differently. They're taking your source code basically and compiling it wrong sometimes, or they use it in a weird environment, or they don't know how they find a weird combination of how to use it in a way that makes it not work. And then so you're, you're tending to everybody's problems separately. Yeah. Um, and it isn't scalable, but it was lucrative. Um, but I thought that more importantly than, um, than just scaling that out forever, like at a very slow pace, which was doing fine, except it doesn't really meet the needs of the masses. Um, and so it would make more sense for us to build the world how we see it one place our own system when something goes wrong it's because we did it wrong and not figuring out what someone else did which takes a lot of effort there's a lot it's like a murder investigation almost you yeah. have to go look at crashes and logs and what did you do this time and is this our fault or did you do something weird is your computer broken so with our own system we we have automation around that and more careful process um, so by doing that it allows us to kind of simplify things um, it, it's really the complexity starts with like say zero point it's impossible because we didn't make anything so then we make software we made it easier but the software is written in c and it's super com complicated to to work and so some people are really good at it and those are my favorite people because we get we hang out and i'll help, help them figure out what's wrong with their stuff when i have the extra time because they really care and they're digging in but it takes a lot of effort to understand it so when you go one step up from there we try and make it more easy for someone who maybe has a balanced life where they can't spend the whole time studying C code. So then we make them easier APIs to work with. Um, and then when you get to the outside, you know, all the way up to, I don't even want, to, I want to type keywords in here to set preferences and click buttons, right. you know, so right. we're, we're trying to solve it for everyone all the way up the stack. Um, but that lowest level, we kind of walled off now because it's just, you can still come and get our open source project off of GitHub and like set it up and actually connects with SignalWire and lets you do cool stuff. But it, it takes kind of a, a certain, um, the kind of person to be able to do it. And there's not as many of them in the world. Like 
I wish everyone was like that kind of person, but it's really <laughs> a very small minority. So yeah. the, making it easier is kind of what we do as a software company. So yeah. scaling the, the back end and making it simple is kind of what the whole thing's about. Yeah. Yeah. So has that been the, the biggest challenge since you guys have started SignalWire in the last three years? Is this notion of, of scaling it and, and getting it, getting the flavor of the ice cream right for each individual person and user and level of user? It is pretty challenging, yes, because anything that you could prototype, um, even if it works amazingly to scale, always is difficult, right? So you have, you can go get DigitalOcean Droplet, a copy of a web service and, and some MP4 files, but you didn't make YouTube yet. You know, you could set something up kind of looks like YouTube on the outside, but how do you deliver right. everybody all the time uh, instantly or Netflix kind of scale where in your fault tolerant, you know, so those things always take a lot more. So the, the designs paradigm is more complicated, um, but it's put to good use because the more complex things you do um, at one time scales very far. So yeah. it's a fair trade-off, but something really easy takes 10 times longer to make at scale. So yeah, it's a pretty big challenge, but that's that's what we're here for. I yeah. always say that's why we call us engineers, but most of us engineers aren't even actual engineers. We're self-appointed, like, <laughs> but we still, we do the job of engineers. Right, right. So uh, we've been talking now for 20 minutes or so, so I want to start wrapping this up, Anthony. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, is there is there something I should have asked you that I haven't? Is there anything else you want to share about SignalWire or your background with our entrepreneurial audience? I would say... Um, one thing that's interesting about us is that as a corporation, we're new at kind of being engaging with the public. And, but as the open source project, we always were very open and kind of family orientated and really interested in building community. Um, we're trying to bring that to SignalWire also. And so we have a lot of resources to come and learn about us without being pressured into buying stuff. Like you can come and join our uh, Slack community mm -hmm. and like look around and you can visit our website and find your way to talk to people. And we have like customer success teams that kind of show you around the software. Um, if you're a developer, we're working on building more tools. We're building as we go out. So um, as we gain more momentum, some of the developers can, can help even contribute to the content that we deliver um, in, win prizes and stuff. So we have all kinds of cool ideas out. So anyone that's into tech stuff, um, we're pretty much trying to make a playground for programmers. So Great. if you know anyone or are interested in it, you should check us out because um, we really think that the developers are finally getting their day in the sun. So we want to help push that forward. Yeah. Yeah. Well, excellent. Well, I will make sure that information is in the show notes, Anthony. Uh, thank you very much for being on the show. Uh, you've been a great guest. Thank you. It's nice to meet you also. Bela, so I like this. You know, we don't have a lot of serial entrepreneurs that are technology kind of experts on this. We've got a lot of people, we've had a lot of people who are more marketing driven or operations driven or have a passion for customer service, um, but we just haven't run into a lot of people who are real technologists uh, and, have, and have made it uh, as entrepreneurs in the, over the long haul. So what was your, uh, your impressions about what struck you most uh, with your conversation with Anthony? Well, you know, I think Anthony clearly has the technical chops uh, to, to move a company forward. And I think one of the things that distinguished him, in my mind, from, from many other technical entrepreneurs is his focus on a product 
and providing a product or a service to a company and not trying to make the product or service perfect. One of the challenges with tech, technical entrepreneurs is they know that they can always keep making it better and better and better and better. And so they never end up sort of releasing the product, if you will. They always want to make it better. And that's a challenge because the best way that you can make your product better is to put it out into the marketplace and get feedback and input from your users. Uh, and I think that was one of the things that Anthony was pretty good at. Uh, I think the other interesting thing uh, that we chatted about was this sort of progression of funding. Uh, so he really had a, a full complement of funding experiences, you know, from funding things, uh, friends and family, themselves, uh, up through uh, professional or, or institutional investors, I should say, venture capitalists. Uh, and I think that's another kind of experience that's good to have because as, as you gain experience with uh, taking money, right, selling equity to various different types of organizations and individuals, uh, you sort of can home in on the ones that work best for you, right? There's, there's some types of businesses that work very well being funded by venture capital. There's other types of businesses that work very well when they're funded by friends and family or angel investors. And there are other types of businesses that work very well if you can get some debt. So kind of finding your space there and making sure there's a good a match between the type of funding you're securing uh, and where you're trying to take the company is really important. And, you know, that's been a theme we've talked about many times on this podcast, uh, making sure there's good alignment uh, between your funding sources and what you are trying to accomplish in your business. Yeah, I agree, Bela. And it was just really interesting to hear him go through that progression and to really match up. He did a, they did a nice job of matching and aligning, like you said, which is cool. And, you know, the other thing that was neat is, you know, you could tell that just by his voice, it wasn't like he was a rah-rah cheerleader kind of person. He was very matter-of-fact. He was very clear in how he explained things. And you could see how maybe a, a VC company and, and institutional investors would say, okay, this guy's competent. He knows the business. He knows the space. And he can get it done. So I thought that was kind of really interesting to compare Anthony with some of the other entrepreneurs that we've had on the show. Um, so that was fun. One of the things that I really loved was that, um, you know, he, the company makes remote communications software. And he said, you know, we have remote workers. We built the company. If uh, we had this tool and we weren't using it, that would be ridiculous. So I liked how he called it. He joked about eating his own dog food. Um, and then they built their own tool, right? I mean, they said, okay, nothing exists to, to do what we want to do, so let's build something. Yeah, and they built it, and they use it themselves, uh, with that, which I think is kind of cool. Uh, so that's always, you know, if you can test your own product, not within your company, have, so having multiple people test it and be critical about it, um, that's, that's always a good thing. And here again, focus on the product or service, focus on getting it out there, getting it in people's hands, not just the developer's hands, but other people's hands and using it, I, I think is, is really important. And Mike, I want to say one other quick thing about, about Anthony and, and sort of, you know, you said his quiet deme demeanor, he's sort of, you know, pretty direct and stuff. Uh, but remember, he's a co-founder. So from an from a investor's perspective, a, a, a young business needs to have uh, multiples of talent in, in every area, right? You have to have the sales and marketing person and that skill within the business. You have to have the technical chops in the business. 
Uh, you have to have some finance chops in the business. And some of these skills are easier to find and harder to find. It's almost impossible to find one individual who has all of that skill set. So Anthony, you know, realized his skills and he got a co-founder, you know, and, and his co-founder um, is, is Sean Henney, who is a marketing and sales uh, type of person, right? So together, they, they have the skills necessary to take a young company and move it forward. And I think that's another important thing, whether you're technical or whether you're more focused on business or finance, you got to think about bringing your core team together that has all of the skills you need uh, to move this business forward. And, and I think that's an, that's an important aspect that sometimes we overlook because we get so driven by our own sort of skill set and our own abilities that we think, oh, that'll, that'll be sufficient. And that's the most important skill set there is. And the other ones, well, we'll just find those when we need them. Well, that's often not, oftentimes not true. Uh, you, you have to have a, a certain sort of core nucleus even to start. And Bela, we've talked about this, right? When you are a VC, this is one of the most important things that you look at. I mean, sure, the technical feasibility and the financial viability, but you've often told me that the quality of the team is really important, that there's this mix of skills. So do you think that's one of the reasons why um, Anthony's been successful? Because he's always been part of a team that had this skill blend? I do. I do. You know, and, and one of the things that VCs often say is I'd, I'd much rather bet on a really good jockey and a, a you know, a, I'd much rather bet on an A jockey and a B horse than an A horse and a B jockey. Meaning that the person does make a difference and a really good team will understand how to migrate and move their product or service and adapt their product and service to the feedback they're getting from their users and the, the, the con consumers and the environment. Whereas oftentimes folks uh, who are so focused on, on just one thing will just keep plowing forward, uh, even though, you know, an outside observer can sort of take a look at that and, and say, mm, you know, you got to tweak this thing a little bit, but they're, they're so committed to what they've started out doing. They're very resistant to sort of adapting to what's going on in the marketplace and investors want to invest in folks that are coachable, right? And are and listen to input because after all, that's one of the role of a that's one of the roles of a venture capitalist uh, or an angel investor is not just to write the check, but also to help and coach and provide input and advice and counsel to move this business forward. And and so they look for people who have that sort of ability to listen to input and, and synthesize that into adapting it to what they're trying to accomplish and then moving the thing forward. Yeah, this adaptability is really important. And we've talked about pivots, which is right, changing your business model on the fly. And, you know, here's the thing, your, your product might be great, but the new competitors come into play or there's new regulation or new laws uh, or there's natural disasters or all these things. And we've seen it with COVID. And, you know, hopefully COVID goes, you know, away in whatever way that happens. But the the need to be able to respond and pivot, especially when you don't have a lot of resources, when you're a small business person is critical. And as bad as COVID has been, one of the cool things to me has been to see the resilience and the flexibility and the adaptability that especially entrepreneurs have had in transforming their business quickly. And we've talked to a bunch of them over the past year now 
Um, but this ability to, to, to change on the fly is critical. And it starts with the team. If the team is one person driving all the decisions, this is where you see a technical founder who doesn't listen to anybody else often gets forced out early by the, the primary investors, right? right? Be, because they don't aren't able to respond and change and be flexible. When it's truly a group effort and people listen to each other and take cues and, and are open to new ideas, the, the business is much more likely to be able to pivot and to, to bend and respond and flex as the conditions warrant. Um, and that's certainly what we've seen in COVID. And we've certainly seen winners and losers in COVID. Not that every loser, it's because they weren't flexible. Some of it's just incredibly challenging circumstances. But it's been amazing in the whether it's in the restaurant space or the hospitality or travel. These these industries that are hard hit have lots of little shining sprouts of, of people that have worked really hard and, and transformed themselves. Yep. Yep. You can take a look at almost any business that's been around for a while and, and look back five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and, and you will see that chances are they are very different today. Their products are different. Uh, the way they do business, their business model can often be very different. So that notion of adaptability and understanding how to react to forces in the marketplace is really, really important. And that's yeah, a listening skill, right? That's a listening skill and a, and a coachable, you have some, your coachable uh, skill that you have to have. Yeah, I like to remind students that, that Netflix and Amazon and Google all looked very different 10, 10 years ago than they do now. And even Apple uh, 10 to 15 years ago is a very different company. And it's the ability to, to adapt and, and flex and change that really makes the difference. And this is why when you look at Tesla right now, um, you know, a lot of people are talking about Tesla um, and they've done amazing things, but I'll bet you in five or 10 years, they'll look very different than what they look like now. Uh, that's just part of the history of, of, of business. And the, I would say maybe it's just me getting older, Bela, but, um, you know, the pay, the rate of change happening is faster and, and companies don't stand still or can't stand still quite as long as they used to be able to. Uh, and that flexibility and responsiveness is critical, uh, because of the global nature of business and internet enabled communications and, um, the ability to ship all over the world, things like this has made this, uh, this skill much, much more critical now uh, than, than even a decade ago. Yeah, so it was really interesting talking to Anthony. I enjoyed it a lot. You know, it was sort of uh, geek to geek, and uh, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, and it was interesting to hear his path and how his uh, career, he's pivoted and changed. Definitely an unconventional path in a lot of ways, right? When you look at where he started as a as an, you know, a very focused engineer into a su successful serial entrepreneur, um, in, in a very interesting business. So what do you think? Should we wrap it up? Yeah, I think so, Mike. Let's give it a wrap. All right. Well, this was great to get kind of a different, more technical perspective on entrepreneurship today. Um, guests, thanks for joining us once again. We hope that you found this episode interesting and thought provoking. And of course, if you have questions about what we've discussed or want to suggest a guest or anything like that, please get in touch with us. Our email is Bela.and.mike at gmail.com. And I promise we'll answer you quickly. Yeah. And uh, please do follow us uh, in your favorite podcasting app. Uh, it really helps us uh, gain additional listeners uh, the more followers we have. So until next time, signing off from upstate New York. See you soon, Mike. Sounds great, Bela, from over here in Münster, Germany. Auf Wiedersehen. <laughs>